Well, I've asked a lot of folks to be in prayer about this uh, message today, and, and I made this statement in my prayer request. I said, I believe that it might be outside of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the second most important message I could preach. Let me tell you why I say that. I say that because I believe that outside of your commitment to trust Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, outside of that decision to follow Christ and to give your life to him, I believe that the second most important decision someone can make is to get married or to who it is that they marry. And marriage is a big part of what God is doing when we look through the scriptures. It pictures his relationship with Israel. It pictures the relationship of Jesus Christ and the church. And we'll get into all of that, especially next week when I talk to, uh, I guess, more to those who are married. Today, you might think the message is a little bit for those who are not married yet. And at the same time, I'm really preaching and teaching the Word of God to equip parents and grandparents and uncles and aunts and Awana leaders and teachers and you name it. So I want to ask you to turn to Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12, put a finger there, and then turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 13. You are familiar with 1 Corinthians 13. Let's stand together as we open the Word of God together. Proverbs 14, chapter 12, I'm sorry, Proverbs, yeah, chapter 14, verse 12, and 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we'll look at the last verse and then some verses in chapter 13. And then just hold your fingers there because we'll be all over the scriptures this morning. How about that? In Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12, we read, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. In Proverbs chapter 12, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, I'll get there. Verse 31, after discussing all the spiritual gifts and kind of getting on to the uh, folks at Corinth for sometimes strutting their stuff and not thinking about the most important thing, he said, but earnestly desire the best gifts. We might say, Strive for the best things in life. Or I would tell our young people, don't settle for anything less than God's best for your life. And he says, and yet I show you a more excellent way. He said, there's a better way of going about this. And in verse 13, he says, there's something better than all these gifts, all your talents, all that really seems like it's making the body of Christ what it's supposed to be. He said, there's something that's more important than all of that, and that's love. He begins to describe love. Again, we'll look into these verses more over the weeks ahead. But I just want to read beginning with verse 4 and then through verse 7 because they'll play a central role in what we're looking at throughout the rest of scriptures over the next four weeks. He says, love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked and thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love, verse 8 says, never fails. Father, we thank you for your unfailing love that never gives up on us. And Lord, I pray that we'll be reminded that not only as the body of Christ, but as family members in our homes and as those of us who are married and those of us who may seek to be in a marriage relationship one day, that that love should always model your love. 
Uh, we should choose to express that unconditional agape love and never settle for anything less than your best. And we pray that your spirit would speak to us through your scriptures this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So I've titled this series, this four-part series, then we'll get into the the Easter passages and prepare for Easter uh, midway through March, but I've titled this series, A Better Way. A Better Way. You know, when we look at all that's taking place in the world today, we have to pause and say to ourselves, there's got to be a better way. It's kind of like when I'm, I'm putting together uh, something that maybe we bought the kids for Christmas when they were younger, and, and I'm trying to read the instructions. I'm thinking, this is crazy. There's got to be a better way. If you try to do love and marriage the way the world suggests you do love and marriage, you will say to yourself, there's got to be a better way. There was a soldier and his commanding officer who got on a train in Switzerland. And as they were on this train ride, they couldn't find a seat except for across from a beautiful young lady and her grandmother who were on the same train. Well, it became apparent that the young soldier and the young lady were kind of making eyes at one another, but this was in a day and a time where it would not have been so sociable just to start up a conversation or to to act on any impulses that they might have had there in the train. But eventually the train went into a dark tunnel, and everybody disappeared, and all of a sudden everyone there heard the sound of a kiss and, and heard the sound of a slap, and then they came out of the tunnel. And all four were sitting there in stunned silence. Well, while they were sitting there, the grandmother said, I can't believe that that young soldier kissed my granddaughter, but I'm certainly glad that she had the courage to slap him for it. Well, as she was thinking that, the commanding officer said, I can't believe... My soldier kissed this young lady. I knew he was up to no good, but I didn't think he would go that far. But what's worse than that, I can't believe when she went to slap him, she missed him and hit me. And the girl was thinking, you know what? I sure enjoyed that kiss. But I sure hate that my grandmother slapped him for it. (laughs) Some of you see where this is going now. And all the time, the the young soldier was sitting there going, man, this is awesome. I've never had an opportunity to kiss a woman this beautiful and slap my commanding officer and get away with both. Sometimes that's the way love is. You don't know what hits you (laughs) or whether you're getting the best of the situation. But I'll tell you this, when you look at how the world exercises this thing called love and romance, God wants to show us a better way than what we're seeing. Instead, we almost try to adopt to the world's ways of doing things, don't we? The whole idea of the dating culture and everything else, we just say, you know what, let's, let's just kind of baptize it and make it Christian. But let's kind of borrow their ways and their means of doing things. It's, it's kind of like saying, let's start a meth lab and have Christian music playing in it. You know? Or, or, or have Jesus loves you on your bikini. Uh, No, that just sounds awkward. That doesn't make sense. Well, when we kind of adopt the Christian standard, the Christian method, and and say, let's just kind of stamp Jesus on it, 
something seems to go wrong with that situation. There's a better way. Parents, grandparents, youth workers, Awana workers, aunts, uncles, <laughs> and teenagers, older kids. I want you to listen. The Bible offers something better than what this world offers us. Now, here's a warning just right up front, parents. If you're hearing some things this morning from the Scripture, and you're saying, it's the first time I've ever understood it that way, and you have older teens in the home, it might be a little difficult to say, I'm going home, and I'm going to start implementing this system this way right now. I would say proceed with caution and with much grace and much love. Values are relayed through a love relationship. And so be sure that love relationship is where it should be with your kids and then begin to relay these values. But if you start young parents, some of you are thinking, man, I've got a baby and I know that Casey and Allie aren't thinking, you know, good night, she's going to be dating someday. They don't even want to think about that. Casey and I were talking about this morning. He's just got to be the, the big, ugly, tough dude. Not ugly, I'm sorry. Big, tough dude, big, mean, tough dude. And so you've got to come through me. But if you start young, parents, I think this will work a lot better. If you waited later in life, implement these principles with caution, with care, and with much, much grace. Transfer values through a relationship. So what's the better way that I'm talking about? As I look through the Scriptures and I say there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. It looks like it's the right way, but it's not the right way. And Paul says, I want to show you a better way. And then we begin to see what love is and love is not. And we look at that in the context of the whole of Scripture. We begin to see that we're so often adopting the world's view of love and romance and marriage and everything. And so what can we do to change things for the next generation? How can we prepare them to get in on something better? I believe, that number one, and most importantly, we need to foster in kids a commitment to moral purity. We need to begin fostering in kids a commitment to moral purity. This is radically different than what the world says. And, and it begins by making their relationship with Jesus Christ the number one most important thing that you're about. Introducing them to a relationship with Jesus Christ. When, when my children were little, I prayed, as I do today, for their future spouse. I said, you know, I remember hearing a song by Wayne Watson called Somewhere Out There. And in that song, he's praying for his son's future spouse. And I began to pray for my kid's future spouse. But you know what I prayed for even more than that? I prayed that in an early age, they would give their heart and life to Jesus Christ. And that they would fall in love with God and want to serve God all of their life. See, we're sinners, born sinners by nature and by choice. Romans 5, 8 says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that's just the beginning of that heart for God and a commitment to moral purity. He cleanses us on the inside. Sometimes we want to change them from the outside in, and God says, let me get on the inside and change them from the inside out. But when he begins that process, we read in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 18 through 20, he begins to get on the subject of moral purity, and he says, you know, you know, we need to avoid sexual immorality. And when he gives his argument for why, he says, because your body, because you are a born-again child of God, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. If you're a child of God, young people, you can't put 
the Holy Spirit on a shelf and say, you know what, I'm going to go on a date, but I'm going to leave Jesus behind. I'm going to the party, but Jesus isn't invited. The Holy Spirit goes where you go, and that's why the Bible says do not grieve the Spirit, do not quench the Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is the person of God living inside of you who goes wherever you go. And so he says, therefore honor God with your bodies. It's interesting that that is what sets up 1 Corinthians chapter 7, which is all about, hey, it's better to get married than to burn with this desire that you're experiencing. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 3 says, this is God's will for you, your sanctification. Now, how many people are wondering today, man, does God have a plan for my life? What is God's will for me? And listen, he says it straightforward in the Scriptures. God's will for you is moral purity. That you abstain, he says, from sexual immorality. So more important than than conveying who you're going to marry one day, God says, listen, for your kids, what's more important right now is that they keep themselves clean and pure and close to God. And because in that process of keeping themselves clean and pure and close to God in his timing, he will bring the right person into their life. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for out of it flow the issues of life. Above all else, guard your heart. Fostering kids a commitment to moral purity. Where do we get our standards for, for romance and dating? It's usually Hollywood. I heard a uh, a preacher from Southern, uh, Professor at Southern Seminary this week speaking on the radio, and, and I agreed with him wholeheartedly. He said, you know, we, we get our ideas on, on love and romance today for, from movies, from Hollywood. If somebody wants to understand love and romance, they'll bring up a movie, and, and he referred to a movie called The Notebook. And they say, that's what love and romance is about. He says, if you want to go to Hollywood and find out what what, what love and, and dating and romance and all that should be like for believers. He said, you need to go watch one of these 1950s werewolf movies. He said, when it comes to even protecting your purity within your marriage, he said, because in, in these movies, when this guy discovers he's a werewolf, he's like, man, when I come out in a full moon, I become somebody I don't like. I do things I regret. And, and so he tells his friends, he tells everybody else, chain me in the basement so that nobody gets hurt, so that nobody I love gets hurt in this process. And when we realize that Galatians chapter 5, verse 17 says, the spirit wars against the flesh and the flesh against the spirit, that the two are contrary, we realize when it comes to this whole thing of love and dating and, and romance and even protecting your marriage in the future, that we've got to walk in the spirit, not in the flesh, and we've got to crucify the flesh and chain that flesh in the basement sometimes and protect ourselves. And so I want to ask you, parents, are we giving that kind of energy and enthusiasm to defending the moral purity of our children? Is their moral purity more important than how they do in athletics? Is their moral purity more important than how they do in academics? Do we say, you know what, moral purity is so important that I'm going to fight with you and I'm going to fight for you to help you stay close to Jesus and clean so that you can enter into marriage without regrets? Or do we just kind of spoil them by giving them everything they want so that in that area they think they should have everything they want as well? 
Do we know what they're watching on TV, on the Internet, over at friends' homes when they spend the night? Are they buying the lies of the way that Jesus said is the broad road that leads to destruction? So that's the first thing. I think that's got to be our number one priority. We've, we've got to foster in kids a commitment to moral purity. Number two, we need to facilitate their discovery of a life of noble purpose. We need to facilitate their discovery of a life of noble purpose. I don't believe that it's enough to tell young people, don't do this unless we offer the better way. The whole campaign, just say no, needs to be accompanied by something to say yes to. And so when we're fighting for their moral purity, we need to facilitate their discovery of a noble purpose. Where are they going in life? Now, we know God wants to use us missionally. When you flip back to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 with me, just a few chapters, I mentioned he kind of deals with the issues of marriage and divorce and all of that, and he, he talks about how wonderful it is to be single if you could possibly remain single. If you have that gift of celibacy and you say, you know what, it, it really don't matter to me whether I get married or not, he says that can be an awesome thing because you are not uh, tied down with a family. You can go and serve God. You, you're, you're freed up. In verse 32 of chapter 7, he says, But I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. And then when you get down in verse 35, he says, And this I say for your own profit, that I may, be, uh, that I may put a leash on you, or not that I may put a leash on you, but for what is proper, that you may serve the Lord without distraction. Why does Paul argue that if you've got the ability to remain single, it's almost better to remain single. He says this, because I want you to be able to serve the Lord without distraction. In other words, if it is that God is calling someone into your life that you might marry them, it would be in a way that you could serve the Lord together and not be distracted from serving the Lord. So after arguing that it's good to stay single if you can, he shares his real concern is that you're not distracted from serving God. And so we need to help our kids understand there's a noble purpose in life, and that purpose is that they serve God. There is a purpose for marriage and serving God. When we go back to the creation of man and woman and Adam and Eve, we discover that he created marriage. We'll get more into this next week, but for companionship, for procreation, that's how he desired to to bring children into the world, be fruitful and multiply, he said. Physical intimacy, uh, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined into his wife. The two shall become one flesh. That's not just speaking of spiritual intimacy. It's also speaking of physical intimacy. It's like that intimate expression is like a fire in the fireplace in the home. Fire in the fireplace is a wonderful and a beautiful thing, but when it gets out of the fireplace, the fireplace is the context of marriage. When fire gets out of the fireplace, all of a sudden, instead of being beautiful, it becomes destructive. And so we want to teach them the noble purpose even of, of marriage and of life in God. And ultimately, the most noble purpose of marriage is that it's a little picture of the big picture. That in the Old Testament, marriage was a picture of God's covenant relationship with Israel. In the New Testament, it's a picture of Christ and his church. Husbands, Ephesians 5 says, love your wives as Christ loves the church. And so marriage in every way should glorify God. There should be a noble purpose in life that leads to us discovering the noble purpose of marriage and of family 
which will in turn lead to the biblical purpose of courtship. To discover and prepare for biblical marriage. It's a process of discovery, of preparing yourself. Courtship is a process of studying and preparing yourself for what we would call biblical marriage. So, Here's, here's a question that I received from the youth, and I gave them permission over the past uh, week and a half to ask me any question they wanted to ask me when I was filling in for Pastor Ben. And one of the questions I got more than once was, when is the right time to begin dating, or when should we be allowed to date, and all of that. And one of the answers that I did not share, but perhaps should have shared based on the Scriptures is this. Would it right now be a distraction from serving God and preparing to be the man or woman God's called you to be one day in the context of marriage. Because if it is a distraction from serving God, then it's not time. It's not time. And so we want to ask this question, can our, can our children articulate the noble purpose of marriage? And can they articulate the noble purpose of relationships in general and then in romantic relationships in dating contexts? Most under the age of 17 probably can't, just to be honest with you. Many between ages 17 and 45 can't tell you the noble purpose of marriage or the biblical purpose of marriage or courtship or anything. Though a few are ready as early as even age 19 or 20 because they can articulate that. They know God's call on their life and his call to family. You say, oh, but pastor, I can hear some young people right now saying, noble purpose, what are you talking about? I'm a good Christian guy, I'm a good Christian girl, and it's just fun to hang out with the opposite sex. It's just fun to date or hang out with somebody that smells, the guys are saying this, that smells a little bit better than you do. And then they get into kind of, they begin at age 14 and 15 and 16 to isolate themselves with a member of the opposite sex, and they say, nothing's right, it's just fun, we just, we just like hanging out together, we're just having fun, because it's fun, it must therefore be right. It's adventurous, it's exciting, it's fun, and so it must be right. Noble, per- we don't need to, right, we're young, we're just having fun right now. And to that I would apply, well, it's fun, it would be fun if we could play with we could just play with the remote control for a nuclear missile and just kind of guide that missile around as we you say, no, that's not fun, that's dangerous, that's scary. It could be fun, but it's not fun anymore because it could hurt somebody. And here's what we've done by the way we've baptized the world's methods of courtship and dating and all of that. We've just taken their way of doing it and we've just kind of stamped Jesus on it. What we're doing is we're, we're saying, listen, We're kind of playing around with something here that can be very dangerous and very destructive. We need to know its purpose. We need to understand the biblical purpose. This is going to be natural for some of you. You will start teaching early in the home. You'll start praying for their future spouse. You'll talk about moral purity. You'll talk about noble purpose of marriage and how courtship plays a role in in that discovering the right person for your life. And by the way, if you're saying, man, I don't even know how to go about that, Pastor Robbie, and you can't preach enough sermons, I need some help on this subject, uh, two books I would recommend. One book that my wife read, one book that I read, and we both said our kids are going to have to read them. Sorry, kids. One is Elizabeth Elliot's Passion and Purity. The other is Josh Harris's I Kissed Dating Goodbye. 
Now, don't worry, he didn't really kiss dating goodbye, by the way. He just, what he did is he put some standards and purpose with dating and called it courtship instead of dating. He just gave it standards and gave it purpose. And so I would encourage parents to read those books, then to encourage their children to read those books before they ever enter into a romantic-type relationship. We need to do all that we can to help them discover God's noble purpose, God's noble call. So many times, so many times, young people settle for less than God's best for their life simply because they were not given a noble purpose and a higher call. And it's our responsibility of parents, grandparents, youth workers, children's workers to instill in them that noble purpose. God's got something better for your life. And then number three, you want to forewarn kids of the dating game problems. We want to forewarn kids of the dating game problems. Let me explain what those problems are. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 does not just tell us what love is. It reminds us of what love is not. We saw, uh, look back down in verse 4, the second part of verse 4, he gets into saying, you want to recognize these problems. It's not envious. It does not parade itself. And I'll talk about some of the wrong reasons people date in just a moment. It's not puffed up. does not behave rudely. It's amazing how many young ladies feel trapped in a relationship with a rude man, a rude young man, maybe a rude 14, 15, 16-year-old boy that hasn't learned how to treat young ladies. It's not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked and thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, and would therefore not try to get you involved in sinful activity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, and so on. He, he, he talks about those things that it's not. There are certain problems that come along with the whole dating game because of this misunderstanding of what love is. Now, how do we avoid bringing all of those issues into a marriage one day? How do we avoid that? We, we avoid that by not letting these attitudes shape the courtship and preparation years. The things that people tolerate when they're dating and when they're entering to this time of life where they're spending more time with the opposite sex, the things they tolerate in that relationship is what they'll end up with in marriage. And I know there's a young lady that will be sitting here somewhere going, oh, I know he's a jerk, I know he treats me bad, but one day we'll get married and I'll change him. When you need to turn him loose, let God get a hold of him. Let God change him. Colossians chapter 1.16 says that God created all things for his glory. And so we need to learn that if there are things in a relationship with another individual in a dating context that do not bring glory to God, then it's going to cause problems. And I'll call them the dating game problems. You might call it for young people, for your children, for your grandchildren, for uh, that nephew, that niece, for that kid in the youth group, or, or that Awana kid you're working with on Wednesday nights, and you're going, I can't believe she's only in fourth grade and so crazy about boys, or I can't believe she's only in fifth grade, or he's only in fifth grade and so crazy about girls. It just blows your mind. When you're working with these kids, you want to help them to understand the problems. Uh, often we encourage something we should discourage. It's interesting how we recognize it in other areas of life, except in this area. We confront it in other areas of life. Let me illustrate it this way. My son's got his learner's license. 
before he can get his driver's license. I have to spend countless hours riding in a car with him. And while we've been riding in a car, I've been talking to him about everything from identifying certain road signs to when you can turn this way, when you can turn that way. And two things I tell him all the time. Son, you have to watch out for the other driver. You've got to watch out for that other driver. You can get in a lot of trouble not watching out for the other driver. And, son, you also have to learn your blind spots because you have some blind spots, and it may not be a good time to get over. And you might have to rely on somebody else in the car with you to help you move in a certain direction. You need to know those blind spots, and you've got to watch out for the other driver. And we'll spend hours and hours and hours. Parents, how much time do we spend when a child gets to that age they can start driving? How much time do we spend with them lecturing and lecturing and lecturing them because we love them and we want them safe? We don't want them to get hurt, and we don't want to hurt anybody. We will spend sometimes 10, 15, or 20 more times as much time teaching them about how to handle a vehicle than we do teaching them about how to handle relationships and recognize those blind spots and saying to our daughters, you got to look out for guys. Here's how they act. Here's how they think. Here's what's, you know, if, if we say that to our daughters, dads, they'll listen to us. You know why? Because they know we are one. And we know these rascals. We know how they act and how they think. And when we talk to our sons, dads, they know that we know the blind spots because we've had to learn how to deal with the blind spots in our own lives. And we'll spend so much time teaching them other things, and we'll relegate this whole thing about dating and courtship and marriage and sexual activity. We'll relegate all of that to a a five-minute conversation where we're just kind of sweating and nervous and saying, I'm glad that's over with. When it should take more time... It should take more of our time to talk about these things. Again, if you're looking for another good resource, I would say get Dobson's preparing for adolescence when they're in middle school and just begin the process, because it doesn't end, begin the process of talking with them about these things. Now, I picked up several of the problems when it comes to this whole thing of dating and and courtship from Josh McDowell. And I've relayed them to the teenagers, even this past Wednesday night when I got the question on dating. And I'll relay them to the parents and and grandparents and aunts and uncles and everybody else here for the sake of accountability. Let me just give you a list. I hope some of you will write these down so that you can use them to encourage others when it comes to this whole thing with problems. The first problem that he mentioned was isolation. Isolation. It's when a couple maybe in their teen years begin to hang out all the time so they're not with their family, they're not with their friends, they're not with the church that they committed themselves to because they've always got to be with this member of the opposite sex. And one way you can tell that they are kind of living above reproach is because they'll want to hang out with mom and dad all the time when they've got to be together. Well, that's kind of cool. I didn't think it was cool when I was a teenager, and I thought Toby and Heather were weird when they hung out with my parents or her parents all the time. But, you know, it, it is cool, and it's, it's above reproach, and it avoids isolationism. Young ladies, a guy that will take you away from your family's not meant to be. Now, when he says, I do, then you go with him wherever he leads. <laughs> when he puts a ring on that finger, says, I do, and Dad says, her mother and I give, you, give her to you, then he can take you wherever. After isolation, there's wrong reasons. There, there are young people that begin to get into dating relationships just to prove that they can, or out of jealousy or loneliness or so many other wrong reasons. Well, everybody's got a boyfriend. Everybody's got a girlfriend. 
They don't call it dating because they're not old enough to drive a lot of times, but they call it going out, and parents and grandparents are saying, going out, where are you going? How many of you kids have heard parents say, going out, where are you going? All right, a few of you have. They say, where, where are you going? We're going out. Oh, no, I don't mean that way. We're steady. That's a 50s term, isn't it? Steady. Then there's the power games. And, and this is something we want to protect. This is a problem we want to protect our young people from. Power games. Power games work like this. He who loves the most has the least power, or she who loves the most has the least power. In that relationship, especially in those teen years, the one who is head over heels in love with the other one can be manipulated and and strung along like a yo-yo and intimidated because the one that loves the most has the least power. The one that loves the least can play the game. Then there's the date consciousness where, where you create a date conscious environment where kids feel like, I don't even want to go to school because everybody's just talking about boyfriends and girlfriends and sometimes it even gets into the church where everybody's just kind of pairing up and it's distracting. It's, it's a date conscious environment. Now listen, I don't think there's any better place in the world to meet somebody you're going to marry than at church or a church-related activity. Now, I didn't meet Tina at a Bible study, but I met one of her friends at a Bible study who went back and told her, I just met your future husband. And, you know, at first we might have thought she was crazy, but it turned out she was spot on. So I think church is a wonderful place to meet your future spouse, but people shouldn't have to come into church with this date consciousness. Young, young people and, and, and middle age, if you're single, older, whatever, there shouldn't be this, well, I'm just kind of looking out for somebody because church is a good place to meet them. There's feelings uh, trapped in a relationship. They're stressed. Now, you think about all the things that a teenager has to deal with these days, the stress of of keeping their grades up, and if they're playing sports or involved in clubs and other things, and then things that are going on with the family, when families go through crisis times, good times, bad times, all the stress that's going on, and they want to add to that the stress of a relationship that is a little bit too close to a member of the opposite sex than should be. And so there's the feeling of being trapped and stressed in a relationship. All of these are problems that we want to look out for. And finally, the one that I think is perhaps the most important one is that you're often inviting too much temptation. You're often inviting too much temptation. In other words, if you don't break up after two months, three months, six months, a year, whatever means you're going to be together for a long time, right? Eventually, in every one of these romantic relationships, it's either going to lead to what? A breakup or marriage. Now, for those who are older and understand the purpose of dating and say, you know what, if if they're kind of going, this this might be the one, and they're praying that thing through, and they've got accountability in their life, then they're probably moving in a good and okay direction. But when they're sometimes as young as 12, 13, 14 years old, and they're inviting all this temptation, and you know they're not going to get married soon, and they look and they say, but, you know, the young people today, I would have probably said my parents, this generation of young people are saying grandparents. They're like, man, our grandparents were even allowed to date when they were 15 or 16. And I want to say, yeah, and they got married when they were 16 or 17. And so they only had a couple of years of that temptation. And nowadays, they want to start having a boyfriend or girlfriend when they're in fourth or fifth or sixth grade. They're going to get married when they're 25, 26, 27 is the average age for that first marriage nowadays. So that means instead of one or two years of fighting the temptation, they're saying, I'm tackling about 15 or 16 years of fighting that temptation. 
And so parents, we're doing a disservice to our first and third and fifth graders when they come home from school and we say, you got a boyfriend yet? Got a girlfriend yet? And we encourage them to want to have that kind of relationship when they're very young. And Josh McDowell puts a list of stats out. And it's very scary to read these stats. It basically says this. If they begin a steady relationship with a member of the opposite sex by the ninth grade or younger, about 85% of the time they'll go down their wedding altar with major regrets. They'll walk down the aisle. They'll come to the wedding altar with major regrets if they have a steady relationship with a member of the opposite sex. 85% of the times. And I guess in today's world you would have to say same sex if they're dealing with that struggle as well. If they wait until 10th grade, it drops down to about 60%. If they wait to the 11th grade before they have someone in their life that they call a boyfriend or a girlfriend... It's only about 40% of the time they have regrets. If they wait till they're about 18 years old and ready to graduate high school before they get involved in a serious, committed relationship with a member of the opposite sex, four out of five times, as Christian young people, they'll make it to the altar with their purity intact and without those regrets. And so why do we encourage at a young age? Well, as long as you baptize it, as long as it's a Christian and he loves God, and you love God, and y'all pray together. Listen, one of the worst things that young people can do after they have kind of gone through that age, all of a sudden they've discovered these things called hormones, and, and their emotions have changed, and everything's kicking in, and they go out on a Christian date. They hold hands with a member of the opposite sex, and they begin to pray, and in that prayer they begin to spiritually bond. All of a sudden, everything physical wants to follow the spiritual. They need to save those kind of relationships until they understand the purpose of courtship and can look forward to marriage. Doesn't mean when they do start that process of courtship and marriage that the first one that comes along is going to be the right one, but they'll know it pretty quick. They'll discover, they'll, they'll, early on in the relationship, they'll say, this is not the one. Why? Because they're distracting me from my relationship with God. And at that moment, at that moment, if it's a distraction from the relationship with God, they're causing me to be isolated. I'm dating for the wrong reasons. We're playing power games here. I'm, I'm too date conscious. I'm feeling trapped. I'm feeling stressed. And, and there's too much temptation. Then they know, as spirit-filled Christians, they're old enough and hopefully mature enough in the Lord to say, then this isn't of God. We've got to break it off at least for now. It's kind of like that thirsty guy in the desert. If, if somebody was walking through the desert and I were to say, here, I'm going to hand you a canteen of cold water. And I just want you to hold that canteen of cold water for about four or five years as you walk through the desert. You say, that's ludicrous. That's often what we say when we say, we want you to enter into these relationships. We want you to have a boyfriend or girlfriend, but keep yourself pure until the day you get married. You know what? It's better off if they just not, if they do what Song of Solomon says, don't awaken love before it's time. Just be patient. Learn to love God. Learn to love your family. Learn to hang out with a group of people like a youth group or some other setting. Learn to appreciate others as God's special and prized creation. And then when the time is right, in his timing, and you understand the purpose and why you do what you do, then he will begin to show you who it is he has. You say, well, Pastor Robbie, did you hear that? Did you practice that when you were growing up? No. I did the Christian dating thing, and I had standards. And I thank God that... uh, 
God protected me and my wife by his grace when we probably didn't hear everything that we should have from a youth pastor or pastor. Youth pastors and pastors that I love dearly, but they just kind of baptized the world's idea of dating and said, let's just call it Christian dating. And you kind of did, you went, went about everything with no purpose, no noble purpose, and you got in on all these problems. What I'm talking about this morning, you'll be very fortunate to find one out of every 20 young people who will buy into it. But parents, grandparents, I believe if we'll start when they're young and instill biblical principles as they grow, they'll want to yield to a better way. They'll want to yield to God's way. I know there's some young people this morning that say, man, that is tough. Well, Jesus Christ loved us so much, he went to the cross for us. And he tells us, take up your cross and follow me. It means crucify, as Paul says, the carnal man. Crucify the flesh and live for God. Be free from distraction to live for God. And in his timing, in his way, one of the greatest moments in my life will be celebrated, let me get this right, 18 years from tomorrow, because it was on February the 18th, 1995, that I pulled out a ring down at Hard Labor Creek State Park where I first came to know the Lord as my personal Savior. I pulled out a ring, and I said, I want to make the second most important decision where I made the first, and said, would you be my wife? I quoted Psalm 34.3, O magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. And I can say without a shadow of a doubt, I'm better, we're better together than we ever could have been apart. That's what God has in mind meeting that person in his time and his way. Would you pray with me?